Welcome back to another episode of Intern Investing. We've got a good podcast for you all today. We're talking Apple. We're talking a great study about how maybe stock picking isn't that important, um, as well as some other topics that we're going to be talking about today. But Zane, I want you to uh, go ahead and kick it off with the sponsor for this podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to say that this episode is sponsored by Main Street Data. If you're wondering where some of the beautiful charts that are coming up in this podcast are from, uh, they're from Main Street Data. The website makes stock research really fast, easy, simple, and it's all in one place. So I use Main Street Data all the time. Um, it shows you the most relevant info and none of the noise. So if you liked hyper charts like me, and you're sad that it's not around anymore, Main Street Data is an awesome way to replace that service. And it's adding even more useful key performance indicators and company-specific metrics for the most popular companies. Uh, so with Main Street Data, you can easily add and remove metrics with a single click and switch between the raw data and the growth rates. And the absolute best part is it's totally free. So check out the link down below in the description or go to MainStreetFinancialData.com to try it out for yourself. Now, the first topic on the plate for today is Apple. And that's coming after I saw a tweet from Ross Gerber on Twitter, basically rhetorically asking, should Tim Cook remain the CEO? He's arguing that Tim Cook should step down for a multitude of reasons and be replaced by a younger, maybe bolder, more... Uh, innovative CEO. And his rationale is Apple's caught up in, in a bit of a pickle right now with there's, there's pressure on them, right? As the monopoly spotlight is on their 30% app store margin. So are they going to be able to maintain that? Should they maintain that? There are censoring concerns with um, what's going on in China and the COVID lockdowns. And above all, I think it comes down to the fact that the growth is kind of slowing down for Apple. And I mean, they're really relying on their service revenue and a lot of their uh, stock outperformance is coming from their buybacks, not necessarily their, uh, their own strict performance. So I'm pulling up a chart here from Main Street Data. You can see the active devices. I know, where is it? I'm, I can cut this out. I, I had that. that. I have that one pulled up. Oh my god! Where it's is right it? there. It's up a little bit. No, I can't even. Right there. Find it. That's not even the one I wanted. Here, I, it like. Quit sharing. Phone. I've, yeah, I've got it ready to share. You got it. Okay. Awesome. We're cutting all this. Out. Okay. So this is a chart of active iPhones and total active devices. Is this the one you were looking for, Zane? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. So I mean. I have to say, I look at this chart and I'm not too concerned. Uh, obviously, this is hindsight. I think Tim Cook has done a fantastic job. I think he deserves a lot of respect. Um, and I don't think there's any reason to kind of upend management because of a lot of potential risks. Um, I think he's, I mean, obviously, his tenure at Apple has been relatively straightforward. Uh, he's been involved in a decade-long bull market, and now, for the first time ever, he's facing a lot of headwinds. Um, but it's not like he hasn't faced small headwinds in the past. Uh, you know, you saw that stuff go down with Epic Games last year, maybe the year before. Um, he had to deal with that and came out on the winning side. So who knows what will happen with Twitter and Elon Musk as they're pushing, you know, to, to try to get that 30% App Store fee down. But I will say, 
I mean, here's where my the, the guy has done a phenomenal now. job. You got to look at the year-over-year growth rates. Pull that chart back up and check out the year-over-year growth rates. Yeah, but Zane, while, while he's pulling up that chart, I mean, you can't expect a two trillion dollar company to keep up that growth rate. I mean, that growth rate is in the triple-digit rate, and so yeah, it's slowed down, but it's because they are having they're, they're the biggest business in the world. I mean, in in uh, in I think it's Q1 2022, they had 1.2 billion active iPhones in a in a product segment that they just started in, I believe it's 2016, their services segment, it's $19.2 billion. That's how much they're generating in revenue. So obviously, you're going to see these growth rates slow. I don't think it's because Tim Cook is doing a bad job. It's just because they're a big company. They can't grow that fast anymore because it's a multi-trillion dollar company. Apple's one that I look at, and it's, I mean, literally, I'm like, I don't need to look at quarterly reports for this company. I've got full faith in Warren Buffett and full faith in Tim Cook because they've shown that they kind of deserve that respect. Now, should I have that faith in a single company? Probably not. That's what is probably the, not super healthy. But... What is the most, you know, um, influential or the most like bold product that Apple has taken on under Tim Cook's management? Maybe AirPods, AirTag? No. Services, services, Zane. Can I can I steal the screen share here for a little bit because I was looking at this? They're just milking the services. They're just they're increasing the margin on services, which is great. But I mean, there's no uh, there's no exciting new product for a while. And Apple, I think, yes, I'm not expecting huge growth. I think your point about them being this biggest company in the world is valid. But there's there's so much optionality for Apple. I think it's reasonable to maybe want a little bit more and not want all of your gains to come from share buybacks. Yeah, but this this services business, yes, is, is it the most innovative thing in the world? No, but this was built with Tim Cook. I believe it was built in either 2015 or 2016. And now Q3 2022, they're generating $19.2 billion on it. So this is something that was worth zero dollars did not exist in 2011 when Tim, when Tim Cook came in and now it's a 19.2 billion dollar business and I mean yeah it, it looks small when you uh, you know add on the rest of their businesses I mean that it's it's that uh, this little yellow one I mean it's it's one of their smallest businesses but it's gone from nothing to actually it's their second largest business behind the iPhone in Q3 it's bigger than their Mac it's bigger than their iPad. It's bigger than their all, all their other products combined. Is it the most innovative? N- no, but it doesn't I mean, have to be. It doesn't have, it doesn't to, have be. to be exactly. the most innovative business to be a fantastic investment. I hope my video didn't just pause. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. No, I, what I was saying is it doesn't have to be super innovative. They don't have to send a rocket to the moon to make it an exciting investment. You know, I think what a lot of investors see is they see a company that introduced the most revolutionary product in the last 100 years being the iPhone. Okay, maybe not the most relevant. Penicillin was pretty important. But, you know, piece of technology, I would say. Um, and so they, they introduced the most revolutionary piece of technology we've seen in the last 100 years. And ever since 2000, was it 2008 when they introduced the iPhone, I, I believe? Ever since 2008, I mean they've made things a lot better, but they've got the top product. They've got the best product and they're introducing 
other products to go along that are very compatible with it. And so, you know, I look at it and I say, okay, they're not doing anything super exciting, but do they need to be doing anything super exciting because they're the top dog and they've remained the top dog and there's not really a ton of innovation happening from other companies um, that are doing anything more than them. The the other thing is I, I don't think Apple's like sitting on their heels either. There are things that are in the works. I mean, are they the most revolutionary ideas? No, but they're making a lot of progress with health monitoring, health tracking within the Apple Watch and some of their wearable services. That's going to be huge. Is that going to be the next iPhone? I don't think so. I, I, I personally don't think it'll be their their biggest revenue segment in you know ten or twenty years. But it's going to make a big. It, it's going to be a huge uh, and I think vital thing to gaining adoption, especially for the demographic that doesn't necessarily adopt Apple products, being uh, you know older people. I mean, a, a lot of younger people are basically ingrained in the in the Apple product ecosystem um, but they're they're targeting a, a demographic that hasn't been uh, that that isn't really gaining traction uh, that Apple isn't gaining traction with yet I think that's going to be a big revenue driver the other one yeah. it's a little futuristic but they're looking at ARVR um, they they have the cash flow to uh, you know invest in that for a long time I think it's a worth it, it's a bet worth taking on I I just want to pull up um, their free cash flow um, for a little bit, yeah. yeah they you, so in Q three they generated almost twenty one billion. God, oh, you can go. go no, you can go. Okay, I was just going to say while you're pulling that up, also check take a look at their their shares outstanding because that's amazing. Like the the fact that they've been able to buy so much back. Um, and yes, it's. It's a good from a shareholder perspective. You just don't want all the growth to come from there. What I'm using right now for the first time is the continuity camera, and I love it. And it reminds me of how there's all these new little features that keep customers hooked. When you think of Apple, like you think of the ecosystem, and it can be just really small things that keep you in the ecosystem. And that's why when, you know, Twitter's freaking out about, you know, if Apple removes Twitter from the App Store, are you going to get a different phone? Are you going to go to Android? And it's been a resounding no, at least from what I've seen. People are not going to switch their iPhone. There's so many things going for it that's it's going to take a lot more than Twitter going away. Um, and And as an investor, I think, that's kind of what you want. You want a situation where you don't need that massive growth, that massive new product to be in a good situation. Yeah. It's like, instead of trying to create the next flashy new product, they're just making their moat wider and wider and wider with all of their integrations they have with their Apple watch, their AirPods, with their continuity camera. It's just a lot of things that I, I don't think are super exciting, but they're, they are changing the way that we live. And I don't know if we realize it until it's all gone, until it would be taken away from us. You know, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, your simple traditional example, but, um, my, my roommate just bought a new phone. I actually think it was today, either today or yesterday. And there, there was no point that crossed his mind that, oh, I am buying a new phone. Should I switch to Android? 
No, of course not. He has the Apple. Uh, he has those AirPods. He's had AirPods for years. He's had a MacBook since God knows when. He's had an Apple phone all his life. All of these are synced together. There is no thought in his mind about switching to an Android because he's so ingrained into that ecosystem. So it's second nature. Uh, nobody asked him, hey, are you thinking about Android? Because it's just a given that he's going to buy another iPhone and just upgrade to one of the newer versions. Totally agree. Well, let's move on to this study that, that, that I heard um, at work a couple of weeks ago, and then I went and looked at the study. NASDAQ put an article um, out. This is a couple of years ago when they put this article out. And there was a study that was done a couple of decades ago, and it analyzed 91 different pension funds. And what it came to the what their conclusion was of this study was that they looked at the total performance over a period of time from these pension funds, and they determined that only out of a hundred percent, only six point four percent of the variation in a portfolio's returns was determined by market timing and individual stock selection. The other ninety four percent is derived from mix and proportion of various asset classes constituting the portfolio. So what I'm taking away from this is that it's not always about which stocks you own. It's about what is your allocation to stocks. It's not about which bonds you own, but it's your allocations to bonds and the same with alternatives. And so that is where most of the difference in performance comes from. You know, if you, you know, Another thing that this kind of taught me is investing, you should take a very goals-based approach. You know, what is your goal? If you want the highest returns, let that be your goal. But why do you need the highest returns? And how much risk are you taking on in that pursuit of those high returns? I think all three of us can safely say that we are trying to get the highest returns possible. But we also have 40 years until we're going to probably need a lot of this money that we're investing. You know, obviously there are some variations there where we may take it out to buy a car or whatnot. But for the most part, this money is not going to be touched for a very, very long period of time. And so that allows us to be very, very risky with our money. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, like, for example, um, take Roth IRA 401k. These vehicles are meant for retirement, you know, and you've got to ask yourself, do you think that individual stock picking within those vehicles is worth it? A lot of 401k plans don't even offer the ability to invest in individual stocks. You know, you can buy a basket of stocks in an index fund, but that's typically about it, unless you have a very nice 401k plan. Roth IRA, IRA, you can do whatever you want. Um, and so you've got to ask yourself, is it worth it to invest in individual stocks? And what risks are you taking on? And you kind of have to try and quantify this. You know, if you look at 12% returns versus 10% returns over the course of 40 years, would that change your retirement? And I don't mean change in that you'll have an extra $500,000. I mean, change the way that you would live. That's what you have to ask yourself. Um, and then in order to get that 12%, how much excess risk are you going to have to take on? How much higher beta are you going to have to take on as an investor? And will you be able to handle that? That's an important question to ask yourself. So, you know, if we know that asset allocation determines 94% of portfolio outcomes, shouldn't we not worry as much about which stocks to allocate to 
and maybe a little bit more about what your goal is and allocate to asset classes accordingly. What do you guys think? I I completely um, agree. I mean, I, I, th I think that's definitely the best way to go, you know, from a strategy perspective. I mean, um, I'm interviewing with a lot of wealth management firms and, um, you know, the, the first priority in, you know, almost all of these wealth managers' minds for their clients is, you know, let's look at the goals. We're not focusing on, on any part of, you know, how your money is being managed right now. We're focusing on your goals and then we're going to shape everything around, uh, you know, how we manage your money based on that. And I think that's the best way to, uh, you know, to, to manage uh, your money and, and invest. But I think that especially when it comes to, you know, uh, do it yourselfers, these are all questions that people should be like asking themselves. But, um, I don't think it's necessarily something everybody's focused on. I mean, all of us, all three of us are creating content in some form or another and all also content love doing this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> all, all content creators, uh, except for a, a few majority that think that, you know, Hey, we should be, um, hel helping educate people. But the, the vast majority of content creators in on the internet are focused on how do I get the most views, how do I get the most clicks, how do I get the most attention? And what do people want? It's not, hey, how do I properly allocate my money? Because that's not something that they necessarily think is important right now. What they want are the stock ideas, are the, you know, what stock should I buy? And so it's I, I, it's a trap uh, that, that I think a lot of the individual investor, you know, do-it-yourself investor community is in. It's just simply that they don't necessarily know this. And until they know that, the content that is going to be created by the vast majority of content creators isn't going to change. It's always going to be, we're going to give you the stock ideas because that is what gets the most attention. You know, yeah. And it's interesting that this study came out before active investing was super popular in the 90s and 2000s. Um, active funds had a lot more money in total AUM versus passive index funds. And so this study even came out before that and that uh, we, we saw that dynamic between active and passive still work towards active throughout the next two decades after this study came out. And so, you know, and I think part of the reason is passive doesn't sell. Passive isn't interesting. Um, and and it, it doesn't make good context. It's no either, fun, you know? man. So, like, it's no I think fun. That, that, I want to pick some stocks. It's no fun. I'd rather lose everything but have fun on the way down, you know? That is, that is not true. I'm just making a joke. <laughs> but I think, you know, in terms of goal setting, I think that's an interesting um, objective or thing to talk about. But, like, for younger people, the goal maybe shouldn't be get the best possible return. The goal, let me throw this out there, should probably be just save a lot of money. And, and it matters just very yeah. little what you actually invest in. Yeah, you should probably invest it in something, but like, you know, preserve your savings a little bit and build something up. Um, maybe I should do a little bit more practicing what I preach because this isn't exactly what I do. But, you know, <laughs> if you think about, you know, say you make a 10% return, pretty average, pretty good. Um, on $10, you're making a dollar. But if you scale that up to $100,000, you're making $10,000, which actually could you know, put a dent in your financial situation. So if you focus more energy on the saving, building up that investment base, I think early on that could be really powerful. And 
matter more than even asset allocation and definitely more than the individual stock that you invest in. This is well, everybody wants to hear that this is the best investment. So but if bro, you're looking if at you hedge have, funds, for if example, you only have twenty dollars to put into the stock and it triples, like wow, cool, you have sixty dollars. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. that's the but that's the problem we're in. Yeah, but but everybody wants the best investment. So if you have an investor trying to find the best hedge fund to invest in, they want someone, they want a, a, a salesman to come and tell them that this is the best of the best. There is nothing better out there that sells. What a salesman can't go do, uh, he can't go tell this person, hey, yeah, these are probably going to be your returns over the next five years. And if you look at this basket of other hedge funds, they're probably going to have the same outcomes because they're allocating to about the same things that we are. And so that's that's where this comes into play, too. It's like you look at alternative A versus alternative B. They're both great vehicles. You can invest in either one. But you know, people don't want to do that. P people want the best possible investment. Yeah, I think yeah. it's just human um, nature. You're trying I, to maximize. Yeah, and and that's why it's so important to, important to take a goals-based approach. If you are trying to generate 8% a year for the next 10 years or whatever it might be, go buy something that you think will generate 8% a year for the next 10 years. You don't have to have the best possible return and you don't have to have the best possible investment. And so I think that's where a lot of people, um, you know, mess up is not having those goals put in to, to your asset allocation. So a good thought process that I think is worth putting yourself through is this. So consider that you have worked hard and put $500,000 away for retirement. You're 45 years old in this thought experiment, and you're 15 years away from retirement. Your goal is $2 million for retirement. In order to reach $2 million, you need a 10% annual return for the next 15 years. If you have an 8% return with very minimum volatility, you might have to work an extra few years, but you have some assurance because of that minimum volatility and the allocation that you've put that money towards. If you're in high beta stocks with tons of volatility, the risk is a lot higher. Would you rather keep your potential outcome limited to two to three years of extra work or 10 to 15 years of extra work? And that's largely determined by allocation. And people often choose the former there where they would rather have the potential outcomes limited to two to three years of extra work versus 10 to 15. And I think that's a smart thing to do as for, for a lot of people in that specific position. Um, and so you kind of have to alter the, the variables of this thought experiment to fit your situation. But I think that's that's something valuable is to put it in terms, put it in something besides dollar terms. Say, don't, don't look at your $500,000 when you're 45 years old and say, well, this could be three and a half million if I got 17% annual returns for the next 15 years and stock picker Joe over there is telling me that he can do it. Well, would you rather take on that risk or just take stock picker, whoever, you know, SPY 
and generate that 8% return with very minimal volatility over the next next 15 years. Uh, and, and I think that choice is much safer. Yeah, I think it's the, the obvious choice, the choice most people are going to go with. And that example particularly sounds a little bit, um, I don't know, kind of you know, overweighted to like the 10 to 15 years sounds scary compared to the two to three years. Uh, when you think it's only a difference of 10% to 8% return on your investments, it seems like, wow, like it's just really not worth the risk of working that, that much more. Yeah. What if you choose bad stocks? I mean, not, I, me. not me, man. I'm not I, choosing bad I, stocks. I, <laughs> Says the one These almost fully invested in Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think the the problem though is yeah when you're given that black and white hey uh, you know you will probably have to work two to three more years but there'll be more s stability versus the y there's a likely chance that X investment that you're making that could go up seventeen percent won't and you'll have to work that extra ten to fifteen years that option isn't presented at the forefront. Obviously, if you're given that choice, most people are going to choose that, you know, two, two to three extra years of work, but that's, we're not going in, you know, pitching, no, no, no person that was hyping up, uh, you know, Peloton was saying, Hey, this is, uh, you know, it could, it could go down 95% and you'd have to, uh, you know, work that extra 10 to 15 years. They were only talking about the, that upside and they weren't putting, putting it in terms of that, uh, you know, risk reward profile. Um, so, and they were only talking about that potential and not necessarily, they were just ignoring that risk, which is the, the key that makes, uh, that, that whole scenario, which everybody would choose that two to three years, it makes that whole scenario possible. So that's, I, that's the problem that I think we're in. First of all, we're only picking that, those individual stocks, but, um, you know, even when we're doing that, it's just, we're eliminating the risk. We're ignoring a, a lot of people, maybe not we specifically, but a lot of people are ignoring that risk side, which is equally as vital, uh, you know, as, as that asset allocation aspect. Yeah. I do want to move it on here to, you know, we're talking about allocation, maybe avoiding a little bit of risk. Now let's, let's get a little bit risky and let's talk about Bitcoin and GBTC, which is great. Grayscale Bitcoin trust. <laughs> yeah. Let's get risky again. Um, you know, I was thinking about this and I think a lot of investors and, you know, crypto speculators are looking at what's happening between Grayscale and Bitcoin itself and seeing the discount and thinking, maybe, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I can, you know, get some arbitrage here. But first of all, you'd have to want to buy Bitcoin. You'd have to understand the risk that you're taking buying Grayscale specifically at a 42% discount to net asset value. Basically, that is, you know, it holds 3.5% of all Bitcoin outstanding. It should be worth that, but it's rough. It's basically trading at 42% discount to that um, because of a couple different reasons. There's a large crypto hedge fund called Three Arrows Capital was forced to liquidate and sell out of their position. So I'll put a chart up um, that kind of explains what's going on here. But you can see the darker bars are showing huge outflows um, and huge volume increases in GBTC as Three Arrows Capital had to um, shut down their operations. So 
obviously that's that's not great as a huge shareholder of GBTC. That's just not that's going to really drag down the the price. But more than that, there's this crypto meltdown in general with Bitcoin going from almost seventy thousand down to like seventeen thousand right now. Um, and then there's what I think is the biggest problem, and that is a lack of regulation and GBTC continually applying to be uh, an ETF or to convert into a Bitcoin spot price ETF. This has been denied multiple times. It's been denied again. The SEC does not want to let this happen. Weirdly enough, they'll let a Bitcoin futures ETF trade, but not a Bitcoin spot price ETF. Um, they're, they think it's you know not well enough regulated. Um, there's potential for market manipulation here. So it's really an interesting story. I, I don't have any crypto holdings anymore, but it seems like regulation has to come at some point. Maybe, you know, this is, this is just me speculating here, but on the way back up for Bitcoin, because I think that's where we're headed eventually, can you capture a little bit more gains if you invest in Grayscale? Potentially, because in the past, as I'll throw up a chart and you can see, there's been actually a premium assigned to Grayscale for, I think, the convenience of being able to invest in Bitcoin in your brokerage, your Roth IRA, whatever it might be. So do you guys have any thoughts on this? I know you're not the biggest crypto people. I can I can start off. Um, look, as appealing as it looks, there are some problems, as, as you mentioned, Zane, and... <laughs> We are in a really scary environment for crypto where, you know, even the biggest, you know, uh, safest, you could call it, players in the space were just built on a house of cards. I, uh, FTX is the prime example. And so with those other risks that, uh, you know, the, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust ETF or the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has, I mean, I don't think... In, in any aspect, whether it's through GB, GBTC or, uh, you know, just straight out buying Bitcoin or any other crypto, I, I have to stay away from this for the time being. I mean, there's just so much rampant fraud or just risk in general in this space. I mean, I don't think anybody can calmly or confidently invest in crypto right now and not believe there is uh, you know a greater than zero possibility of it going to zero i think i think the the possibility of x uh, investment that you're making in the crypto space going to zero is probably higher than it going to uh the moon or there could or also whatever. be a so. case though that in the way that coinbase could benefit you know if it's the last man standing or the best option or the best exchange option for um crypto trades you know Grayscale could be in a similar boat where it's so focused on Bitcoin as other coins that, you know, are like FTT and people are like, do, do these really have value? They're really getting hammered. Yes, Bitcoin has also dropped so much, but I want to say that, you know, Bitcoin's going to be more resilient. It's kind of like the blue chip crypto. I can see it coming back, whereas others might not. And I think there's a possibility that as, you know, Grayscale is the most liquid uh, Bitcoin investment option, it can capture a lot of market shares. People want to come back into it. My, my concern, though, is if that doesn't happen, 
it's probably not worth it just to capture that, you know, that extra arbitrage on the discount. Because at the end of the day, if that thesis comes true and Bitcoin, you know, reaches its all time high again, let's say that's not really going to matter to you if you capture that extra little discount. So it seems like, you know, you're playing with either a zero or a one with Bitcoin and you're trying to kind of nickel and dime it a little bit. That might not be the best strategy. Well, I don't know if 42% is nickel and diamond, but I, it's a couple and I, I will say like, I don't know how much, um, I don't know how to trade options on crypto directly. So if you're trying to take like a short term, not short term, but say you get a two year leap on GBTC, you get that extra 42% if they have their holdings which is a big if, and that's, that's where this comes down to is there's a lot of fear in the market that maybe Grayscale doesn't actually own all the Bitcoin they say they own. Um, and that's why they're trading at such a discount right now. And they're not willing to have their, their holdings audited because of security reasons. I, I don't know what validity that has. I, I, I don't know if I, I have, I'm not an accountant. I'm not an auditor. I don't, understand that world whatsoever. Um, maybe that makes good sense to some people. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but I will say, you know, if I was thinking about making an investment in Bitcoin short term, I would try to get some out of the money options. Like this is just like a very cheap, uh, like, like I would, I would go way out of the money, super cheap. Um, and you could probably actually model out say grayscale, say GBTC went to a hundred percent. There was no longer trading at a discount to its underlying holdings. Bitcoin was going up. It went to a hundred percent. What's, what's your profit going to be? That would be something interesting to model out. And I probably should have done it for this episode since we're talking about it, but I have not done that. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll do that in the future and bring it up on another episode. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting, interesting idea. Like if you're bullish on Bitcoin, why not grab that extra 42%? Not but, that it's a sure deal, but if, uh, okay, maybe not if you're bullish on Bitcoin, but if you want to place a speculative bet on Bitcoin, why not add a little more risk if you know your money the... could go to zero? <laughs> well, That's if you know your money could go to zero risk. and you're just playing around, I don't know. Maybe well, buy look, some cheap out of the money options on GBTC. <laughs> I I, th I think this scenario would be more than just a little more risk. If we're say if we're putting into question the fact that it's GBTC, a zero or a one, if it owns its own uh, coins, it that's the risk that seems that seems like an <laughs> ungodly, true. uninvestable risk. If that's the well, risk, this, why are we even considering it? <laughs> no. See, what I'm saying is, if the investment is a zero or a one which that's kind of my take on crypto. It's either a zero or a one, and I don't know which one it is. Yeah, but there it's are the other same thing zero... with Grayscale. It's the same thing with Grayscale. So if Except I am we don't putting know if that- they own all their own coins. That's what I'm saying. It's a zero or a one. Like, obviously you're taking one zero to one bet and you're just throwing another zero to one on top of it. It's like <laughs> ultimate speculation. Oh boy. I love how like, this, this, around fun. this episode went from preaching Strict asset allocation and focusing on what matters. Maybe <laughs> you buy some out of the money, you know, leaps on GBTC. I I, th yeah. I think there are other ways. If if you want to take a a zero to one bet, I think there are other ways. Not even maybe 
probably there are some in the crypto space, but you know, just even out of the crypto space, um, there are other ways to make a zero to one bet that I think um, have a much less likely chance of actually being zero than than something like this. But uh, you know, to each their own. Connor, go buy some uh, some out of the money options on CBDC. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. if I were to play around. With some money. That, yeah, sorry, that guys. Connor's be, uh, not here. He's, he take. quit investing after last week's podcast when we dared him <laughs> to go in on Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. It's like, listen, if I, you know, it's kind of like sports betting. If it's a 50 50 matchup, say it's like, I don't know, the Jets versus the Patriots or something, there's not really, you know, a big underdog in that game. And I don't even know what the Patriots record is this year. I think the Jets are actually pretty good. But say that's the game. Um, there's not a big underdog. It's kind of 50-50. It's a coin flip. That's kind of the way that I view it. It's like just ha having some fun with some sports betting, you know? Watch yeah. those Bitcoin charts. It's the same thing as tuning yeah. into the Jets-Patriots game. Yeah, so go sports for... betting and at least have a enjoyable game to watch. <laughs> This would be enjoyable too. As enjoyable, scary, man. Hey, the charts are moving twenty four seven on Bitcoin, and the game only lasts the game's two only hours. three hours That's long. Yeah, endless that fun is, versus two hours. That is the worst <laughs> mentality I've ever heard. But as we are you know, <laughs> cranking up the risk at the end of the episode, let's cap it off with with this investment idea of uh, Chinese crap coin backed by Venezuelan subprime mortgages. What do you think? That's that sounds good. We should create it. Yeah, out of the money. Buy some calls out of the money. That's Have y'all heard about FTT? Here it's going yeah. to the moon. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's oh, nowhere man. else to go. Well, that was a pretty I mean, short episode. It, if you're at the ground, where is it going to go? Yeah, where does it go up? It's got to go up. Underground. Yeah, it comes down, it goes up, right? <laughs> so, well, awesome. Well, that concludes the episode. Sorry for the polar opposites. Um, at the beginning, we talked about Apple, and then we talked about strategic, smart capital allocation. Um, try to listen most intensely to that part of the episode and maybe forget about the end. Um, obviously, there are no recommendations that are made in this podcast, so please, formal recommendations. Uh, if you want to have fun, go do it. But. Anyways, that concludes this episode. We appreciate you guys listening. If you're still here, please subscribe. Um, please like the channel. If you're on, if you're listening to this episode, give us a review. Give us five stars. We appreciate it. If you made it this far, we hope you would give us five stars because this is a pretty fun episode. Hope you enjoyed it too. We'll see you guys next week.